Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello and welcome into our latest installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Tina, how's it going? How are you, Joe? Doing well. And we're lucky enough to have Rich right on his way out the door before coaching as Rich Lenkoff of Bryce Downey and Lenkoff joins us as always as well. Rich, uh, should I put money on the game tonight? We got the JV uh, Harriet Tubman Elementary Bulldog squad. We're uh, going for our fourth win against two losses. So pretty good. Young Cooper Lenkov is, uh, I would say, a key component of the team, starting point guard. So, yeah, I got to rush right out of here to get to get to the school to coach him up, Joe. Put some money on it for sure. Guaranteed yeah. lock today. Yeah, yeah, you definitely sound like uh, the dad of uh, the coach <laughs> and the dad of the team. More of the dad, um, yeah. Let, let's get right into it. Uh, first topic regarding the families of the Sandy Hook massacre reaching a settlement with the gun company that made the weapon, we have joined with us Professor Timothy Litton, distinguished law professor at Georgia State University. Professor, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Along with Adam Skaggs, chief counsel and policy director at Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence. Adam, thank you for being here as well. Thanks for having me. Adam, let's talk first about some history, because I think it's uh, hard to understand the importance of this $73 million record settlement without looking backwards at the prior record settlement, which I believe was uh, $2.5 million against Bushmaster, another gun manufacturer, back in uh, 2004. That resulted in President Bush, then President Bush, signing into law the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which for many years created immunity largely for gun manufacturers uh, against lawsuits by families' victims. Fast forward to this settlement, and we go from 2.5 million to this amount. What was the genesis of this current lawsuit, and how did this family finally break down that strong piece of federal legislation? Well, this uh, lawsuit has its roots in the the horrible tragedy, the horrible mass shooting at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. Um, Following that massacre, uh, the families of, I believe, nine uh, victims of that shooting, so um, not all of the families, but a number of them, uh, filed a lawsuit uh, with two central claims. The one that's relevant here was that uh, Remington, uh, which owned Bushmaster, the, the company that, that made the gun that, uh, that was used in the shooting, um, that they had violated Connecticut's uh, consumer protection laws. Connecticut has a statute called the Consumer, uh, excuse me, the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act. Um, and it, uh, it prohibits un- unlawful, unfair, uh, deceptive marketing practices. Uh, and the family, uh, the families alleged that uh, the marketing of this Bushmaster assault weapon, which targeted uh, young men, uh, they had a campaign that was said, get your man card back. You could only uh, have what they called your man card if you had one of these uh, assault weapons. Um, they said that violated the Unfair Trade Practices Act. And under the federal immunity law, the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which you just mentioned, uh, if uh, if you bring an allegation that says a gun company violated a federal or a state law that pertains uh, to the sale or marketing of firearms, uh, if you can allege that what's called a predicate uh, violation, uh, then that's a sort of a a way to thread the needle and get around or get through the uh, federal immunity law. So that's what these families did. It was an innovative and untested theory uh, that went all the way up to the Connecticut Supreme Court, uh, which held that they had alleged a viable claim. Uh, and that's ultimately what got us here today. Uh, they Professor, were preparing for trial. Thanks. Professor, why do you think it took so long to get you know around, so to speak, this federal uh, legislation? Certainly, there was no, there's been no shortage of shootings in the time between the signing of that law and uh, this lawsuit. 
Since the passage of federal immunity back in 2005, a lot of plaintiffs have tried to get around the immunity law under one of the exceptions. The exception, as Adam mentioned before, is an exception that says that a firearms manufacturer or seller is stripped of their immunity if they're engaged in the violation of a law that's applicable to the sale of a firearm. And the question that often comes up is, what does applicable mean? Um, several people have brought cases under the theory that applicable doesn't mean specifically a, a firearm statute, a statute that's designed to regulate the sale of firearms, but any statute that could be applied to the sale of a firearm. And that might include a general nuisance statute, or in this case, a general consumer protection statute. The Sandy Hook um, families argued that the violation of the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act was a violation of a statute that's applicable to the sale of a firearm. And the Connecticut Supreme Court agreed with them that that actually qualifies for an exception and would strip the manufacturer of immunity. A similar theory was used for, with nuisance statutes um, in cases arising out of New York and California, and both the Second and the Ninth Circuit have, re have um, rejected this particular theory. Their argument is, is that applicable to the sale of a firearm means a firearm statute, not any general statute that applies to a firearm. The Connecticut Supreme Court's decision, of course, stands. The case has been settled. The, the U.S. Supreme Court didn't take the appeal to clarify what applicable means in this statute. The U.S. Supreme Court's going to have the last word on this, and they won't have the last word in the Sandy Hook context because the settlement of the case leaves this question unresolved. So I don't know that this is really a signal that the immunity barrier has been significantly breached because of this exception. I think it leaves that question open. I would say that this is a significant victory for the Sandy Hook families. It's a five-year litigation effort. It was a heroic job in terms of the lawyering. I think that this probably will encourage people who are already in the business of bringing these lawsuits. There have been a steady uh, trickle of lawsuits since the immunity bill, but I don't think we can expect a flood of litigation because I think the central question here has been unresolved uh, and is likely to remain unresolved until we have another case that raises it. And until that question is resolved, we're not going to see a lot of plaintiff's attorneys lining up to get into this business like we did in opioids or in other areas of litigation where we get a sort of general evolution of these sorts of lawsuits. So, Adam, key to the settlement was Remington's agreement to release thousands of pages of internal documents, including plans on marketing these weapons to young people. Can you give our listeners a little bit more insight in, into that aspect of the case? Well, I can't give a huge amount of insight into what those documents specifically are because they have not yet been made public. They, I assume, will be uh, in relatively short order. Uh, but what we've seen already made public through uh, the litigation um, is is very troubling. As I said, you know, this get your man card reissued. Um, the um, as part of disputes around discovery, the plaintiffs in this case filed some examples of some of those documents, which really show very problematic, very troubling um, advertising campaigns. Um, you know, playing on the worst fears and uh, really provoking the most uh, violent imagery and that sort of thing. I think why, uh, again, without having seen these, these papers, other than what's already been made public through uh, discovery uh, disputes, um, I think it's important as a victory for the families because this is gonna be really the first time where we kind of peel the lid off uh, this industry's internal workings and, and, and get a, a peek behind the curtain to, to mix metaphors here. But, um, you know, I, I think if you look back at uh, attitudes about smoking and secondhand smoke, and you look at turning points in Americans' views about uh, tobacco products, their safety, uh, their de social desirability, it was really litigation against the industry that started bringing some of these internal industry documents uh, to, into the light of day that allowed the public to understand that these uh, industry executives who were saying nicotine wasn't addictive and cigarettes weren't harmful for your health, when the public learned through the kind of exposure of documents that were anticipating in this uh, Sandy Hook litigation that these executives were lying to the public and lying to Congress about what they knew about the harms their products caused, that's really, I think, when you started to see the tables turn in terms of public opinion. And I think this case could be uh, equally significant in terms of changing people's attitudes and perceptions of what the gun industry knows uh, and frankly, what it doesn't care about. Uh, it's, I think this case is made very clear. The only thing that the gun industry cares about is its bottom line, is making profits. Uh, and they operate as though they're above the law because things like this federal immunity law have allowed them to escape any kind of accountability up until uh, cases like this.
Professor, last question we have time for on Legal Faceoff. Um, you recently authored a really excellent article about the precedential value of this settlement as it relates to other potentially harmful or deadly products like autos, right? Uh, what are your thoughts on whether people will now successfully sue or settle cases with companies like auto manufacturers? Well, I don't know about auto manufacturers. What we're talking about here is suing manufacturers for the um, criminal misuse of their products. Uh, probably the most illustrative parallel is with the opioid litigation. Around the time that these lawsuits by gun violence victims and municipalities were being brought in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, addict, uh, addicts of um, OxyContin and municipalities and public health authorities were starting to sue opioid manufacturers for the um, illegal use and illegal diversion of their products. And what we saw is, is that as those lawsuits, both in firearms and in opioids, started to gain momentum, there was an important difference, which is, is that um, Congress granted the firearms industry immunity. And so we haven't really seen what this litigation is likely to be able to produce. In the absence of immunity, what we've seen with opioids is an enormous change over the last 20 years, uh, changes in attitudes on the bench, changes in attitudes about the companies. We've seen reformulation of products to make them less addictive. We've seen changes in the marketing of the products to make ag uh, less aggressive attempts to oversupply them. And we've seen changes in the distribution patterns of opioids to try and deal with the addiction crisis. Whether or not those things would have been true in firearms had there not been immunity, we don't know. And I think the jury's also still out as to how useful uh, the litigation has been in the opioid context. There's been a lot of change in the industry in terms of reformulating the products and the way they do business. But as everybody knows, there's been a substitution to even more harmful drugs. And the overdose crisis of opioids is actually worse. And that may be partly attributable also to the litigation. So I think it's really a mixed scorecard. We don't have the full story on opioids, but that's kind of what it looks like uh, for an industry in the absence of this kind of immunity. There is a possibility of litigation getting traction, changing industry practices, educating the public about how it works, as to whether or not the ultimate public health results are really positive uh, as a net matter, we don't really know. That's information that probably would be useful to look into more closely. Again, that's Professor Timothy Litton of Georgia State University and Adam Skaggs of Giffords Law Center. Up next, we'll cover the protests in Canada with Lori Williams. You're listening to the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey & Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. A few weeks ago, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that the government had invoked rarely used special measures, allowing him to tackle the protests that paralyzed downtown Ottawa. We have Professor Lori Williams of Mount Royal University with us. Professor, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Professor, real pleasure. And again, as a, a proud Canadian and McGill alum, this uh, subject is near and dear to my heart. I keep pitching Canadian stories to my co-hosts here, and they keep rejecting them. They think, you know, Canadian politics and law isn't that sexy, and this will prove hey. them otherwise, <laughs> right? So uh, to Joe's point, on just Monday, the uh, the legislature approved, uh, voted in favor of continuing extending Prime Minister Trudeau's invocation of the Emergencies Act to deal with 
the COVID, COVID mandate uh, protests. What is the act and uh, how and why did Trudeau invoke it in this circumstance? So the act is called the Emergencies Act. It's um, some people may recall that we had a, 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 an FLQ crisis, a terrorist uh, kidnapping of a couple of politicians and the killing of one of them. And the the predecessor to the Emergency Emergencies Act called the War Measures Act was used at that time and it violated the rule of law in ways that we don't need to go into today. The Emergencies Act was enacted to replace that in a way that would respect the rights and freedoms in our Constitution, uh, and particularly what's called our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So uh, the Emergencies Act is meant to give temporary powers to the federal government to act in areas that might otherwise be provincial jurisdiction. And But again, only temporarily, as we've seen, it was invoked um, a week ago Monday, uh, took effect on Tuesday, and um, the the measures that were were talked about, which include uh, fin- freezing bank accounts, it includes uh, seizure of some of the trucks that were blockading uh, Ottawa or may yet blockade our borders again, um, and to give powers that the federal government said that they couldn't otherwise um, employ, or at least not in such a, a quick way. And so the debate since then has been around whether, in fact, it, it qualifies as an emergency under the Act. Uh, there are a few categories under which it might qualify. And the debate right now is, across Canada is whether or not what's, what happened, particularly in Ottawa, qualifies as an emergency. The real challenge that we've seen is that because there are four different police agencies, if you like, involved in Ottawa, um, and the overlap between and amongst them, there just seemed to be a paralysis where, where police weren't enforcing the law and more and more demands were being made of government to deal with it. The emergen- There was an emergency declared in the city of Ottawa. There was an emergency declared in the province of Ontario. And neither the mayor nor the premier seemed to be in a position or, or willing, perhaps, to use those powers to deal with the crisis. And so the prime minister finally said, well, it looks like we don't have the legal uh, mechanisms to do this effectively. We are going to declare the Emergencies Act and get hold of some of the um, the sources of power, if you like, that these protesters are using in a new way, primarily those financial powers coming through through um, crowdsourcing uh, platforms and, and also the fact that these enormous vehicles were were uh, sitting in, in downtown Ottawa and blocking roads and uh, filling the air with noise and, and diesel fumes. So, Professor, do you think Trudeau had the constitutional authority to invoke the Emergencies Act? That's the debate. So, and there are very strong arguments on both sides. So, let me just, uh, I want to highlight certain areas. So, in the Emergencies Act, it says that, that they can actually claim these powers under public order emergency. And there are lots of things that qualify under that. We need to find the definition in another piece of legislation called the Canadian Security Intelligence Act. And it gives a few different um, categories that, that might be involved here. The, I'm going to highlight the one bit that most people are arguing might apply here. The threat or use of acts of serious violence against persons or property for the purpose of achieving a political, religious, or ideological objective, um, and it's intended ultimately lead to the destruction or overthrow by violence of the constitutionally established system of government in, in Canada, and it does not include lawful protest advocacy or dissent. So the question um, primarily here, again, is whether the only way that this, this, these powers can be taken is if, if there is no other law or set of laws that could do the same thing. And the primary argument, I think, for saying that this is different and that the powers didn't exist to deal with it is the access to those funds that were coming um, from both the United States and Canada, those funds that were coming through um, through the uh, crowdfunding platforms um, to enable the blockades at the borders and the, the blockade in, in Ottawa. Um, they were hoping to sort of get at the funding that's underpinning that to do sort of publicly warn and let people know, look, this is coming. You have a choice. You can now leave and we won't deal with you. But if you stay, we not only will uh, seize um, bank accounts and credit cards and so forth or take control of or suspend them or freeze them, but we can also actually seize your vehicles. Um, it also involved bringing police from not just the four service <coughs> services that are already operational in in uh 
Ontario, but brought police from services across the country. And again, I don't know that you needed the Emergencies Act for that, that it would have taken longer and it would have involved actually swearing in each individual officer. This was something they could do more quickly. The other feature of the act that's really important here is that there's a mandatory inquiry into whether it was justified or not. And, and so what we're going to be doing is looking at very in a very detailed way whether it was justified. And I think there are really strong arguments, frankly, on both sides about whether it was justified. But the reality is that the, um, the impact um, of some of these people involved in, in the blockades some, again, were engaged or saw themselves as engaged in peaceful protests, but others were, um, you know, driving near RCMP officers and nearly knocking them down, um, harassing people who were wearing face masks, ripping their face masks off in some cases, blowing their horns 24 hours a day until a court injunction made them stop. And then they started up periodically again after that. There's a fire set in a residential building in downtown Ottawa. So, And of course, many of the protesters were actually asking for the replacement of, of the government. So um, given the very sort of narrow focus of the act, I think it's possible that it, and lots of constitutional scholars are saying that it's possible for them um, to, to sort of meet the test for this temp temporary emergency. But I think, certainly I think what this exposes is a gap in the law that needs to be rectified. Uh, we don't want something as big as an emergencies act uh, being the only way that, that the national capital can actually take hold of its of its streets. Um, clearly, there are gaps in the law that need to be fixed. Professor, last question we have time for. Uh, listen, that you can't look at the invocation of the Emergency Act in a vacuum without considering uh, whether Trudeau had or has the political capital uh, to carry this out, right? We all know that uh, there's really, especially for someone like the Prime Minister of Canada, there's no action that's strictly legal. So talk to us about how this action is being taken by the Canadian public. And that's obviously changing, too, as we go into our next stage of COVID. So talk to us about how the general population is viewing this act and whether he has the support, frankly, to continue uh, uh, you know, invoking it. Well, again, it's that 30 day limit and it's it's focused almost exclusively inside of Ontario. And it's important to remember that the premier of Ontario actually welcomed this. Some premiers, of course, are opposed to it. But the premier of Ontario asked for this. Um, that said, uh, the majority, about two thirds of of Canadians support stopping the protest by whatever means necessary. Um, so for now, I think um, because the the actual breakup of the of the blockade in downtown Ontario, uh, downtown Ottawa, was was managed with with a fair bit of police restraint. Um, there are reporters that were on the ground who have been at all kinds of different protests, and they were struck by how how methodical, um, how limited the the uh, exercise of police power was, even though their presence was significant. So, so far, the use of the powers has raised some questions. There have been some people who said that the police went too far in Ottawa. There have been, to my knowledge, two complaints raised against the police for, for use, excessive use of force. Um, there are some questions around the bank accounts that have been frozen, but it's important to note that some of those bank accounts are being unfrozen as we speak, and they only affected about 60 people, I believe, 67 people were actually, or entities were affected by it. So we might be saying one person might have a bank account, a credit card, and something else that's frozen. Um, but the trick is going to be how far did those do those powers continue to go, and are they removed in a timely way? Again, that's Professor Lori Williams of Mount Royal University. Professor, thanks so much for the insight today. Oh, my pleasure. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Moving along in the Legal Faceoff podcast, Ellie Honig has a documentary commemorating the 60th anniversary of the trial 
of Adolf Eichmann can be found on CNN. Ellie joins us today on Legal Faceoff. He's also a senior analyst at CNN and senior counsel at Lowenstein and Sadler. Thanks so much for being here today, Ellie. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, giving time to talk about this important issue. So, Ellie, you released your documentary recently, which commemorates the 60th anniversary of the 1961 war crimes trial of the architect of the Holocaust, Adolf Eichmann. It's a really highly gripping and emotional account of the Holocaust and the trial. I watched it. Um, I literally had chills the whole time I was watching it. Can you please tell our listeners a little bit more about it? Yes. Uh, so by happenstance, I met Gavriel Bach a few years ago. Gavriel Bach is, is, uh, in his, was in his early 90s when I met him. He was one of the prosecutors uh, who tried the case against Adolf Eichmann. I went to a forum in Israel where he was the, the main speaker. And afterwards, I asked if I could interview him for CNN. And I ended up spending basically um, better part of the, the whole next day with him and his family. And he's this riveting figure whose family, when he was a young child, barely escaped the Nazis. Um, and then I also got put in touch with Michael Goldman, the other main subject, who was his family was murdered by the Nazis, as many millions were. Michael Goldman himself then survived Auschwitz, but he became the lead investigator in the trial. And he's alive today at 95 or 96 years old. And so I had this unique opportunity to interview both of them still alive in their 90s on the 60th anniversary of the 1961 Eichmann trial. And I think the trial itself um, was such a watershed moment in our history, collectively, globally, because it was really the moment when the world first reckoned with the Holocaust. If you talk to people who are around them, they will tell you it was not recognized as, quote, the Holocaust, capital H Holocaust. It was known as this thing that had happened. But this was so key because it was a globally televised trial and it really gave the world its first glimpse into how the depths of what had happened. Well, it's really interesting that you point that out, Ellie, because I, I, I know this story is very personal to you. Your dad's in the film, but, you know, yeah. it's interesting because you're a former prosecutor, you're a frequent guest on our show, and you know intimately what you can learn about a case from going through the investigative process as a former you know, assistant U.S. attorney and through discovery, through trial. So what did the world learn about the Holocaust and about, uh, you know, these atrocities through the trial process that we would not have otherwise known, but for this watershed piece of litigation. I think I'd say two things, Rich. One is just the extent and the scope of it. Gabriel Bach's task was to locate at least one witness, one victim who had lost family or been through the camps in every country, every country that had been overrun by the Nazis. And they introduced evidence about the scope and scale of the slaughter here. Um, there's one actually unbelievable, well, no, I don't want to say unbelievable, it happened, but there's one remarkable um, piece of the documentary where Michael, uh, excuse me, where Michael Goldman has these reams of documents listing the prisoner numbers of thousands of prisoners that were on each transport, these cattle cars. And at one point, they can't just, they can't authenticate what this list of numbers is. It's just a list of numbers. And Michael Goldman says, hang on. This is an Auschwitz transport because I, Michael Goldman, he was an Auschwitz prisoner. He has his number still to this day stamped on his left forearm, his prisoner number, and it fits right within the numbers on that document. So um, a sense of the scope of it. And the other thing I think that was really driven home was that this was highly organized, planned and plotted. Eichmann is known as the architect of the Holocaust. I think that's a bit euphemistic. I mean, because, the, you know, the architecture, he was also known as the Nazis logistics manager. I'm using scare quotes here, but the logistics that he was in charge of managing was rounding up, deporting and murdering millions of Jewish people and others, I, I should mention as well, other ethnic, racial, religious minorities. So I think for the first time the world saw, wow, this was a very much real B beyond the, the imaginable scope and C highly coordinated. So, Ellie, your account is really disturbing. I, I think the whole the whole thing is just very gripping. For me, it was watching um, Eichmann's testimony. Yeah, that was particularly chilling and hearing Goldman's test, you know, hearing Goldman's commentary um, about how he was just lying. Yeah. Um, what was the most surprising aspect to you of the trial and the Holocaust that you learned 
coming out of this. So Eichmann's testimony, and I, I had the same reaction. I mean, hearing his voice, you know, it's sort of, he, he's, and, and both of both men talk about this. He was perceived as this monster. And yet there he is, he's shriveled and he's old and he's has this sort of high tinny voice. But what he says, essentially Eichmann, and there's the famous imagery of him in the glass box. So he, you know, he, he wouldn't be harmed. Um, his defense is essentially just following orders. He says, I was a small cog in a very big machine and I did what any person would have done. And then we cut to Goldman, the investigator who essentially says he was lying. I mean, it's as angry as Michael Goldman ever gets. And Gabriel Bach, I should mention the prosecutor, also firmly rejects this notion of what Hannah Arendt famously called the banality of evil, meaning, well, there's nothing extraordinary about evil. All that these people did was what any human, any imperfect human would have done in the situation. And Gabriel Bach's reaction to that was, I think his exact quote to me, it didn't make it into the film, was rubbish. He said, that is rubbish. And they both cited examples where Eichmann had gone above and beyond his orders to kill as many Jews as possible. In one instance, he actually ignored an order from Hitler that certain people be spared. Hitler had worked out some sort of political deal. And they both also pointed to, to the fact that Eichmann targeted children. He said the way to really end this race, the Jewish race, is to, is to kill the children. And so they both forcefully reject this idea of just following orders, but also banality of evil. And that phrase is sort of caught on over the years. They both, uh, to me, in a, in a very convincing way, reject that. Well, unfortunately, last question we have time yep. for. It's a really fascinating subject. And there's so many lessons. But in light of, I mean, just today in our grab bag segment, in a few minutes, we'll be discussing horrific trials, you know, going or, or trials of horrific hate crimes going on, you know, right now uh, with, with George Floyd and the uh, Ahmaud Arbery murderers, right? So aside from the fact that this documentary is incredibly timely for the anniversary, what lessons can this documentary and the trial tell us today that's relevant in 2022, given what's going on in our society right now involving race and issues like this? Yeah, both, both subjects who I interviewed made clear that they were sort of dismayed that the lessons of the Holocaust continue to be relevant today, that racial hatred and religious hatred and ethnic hatred live on. The, the only other thing I would say, it, it's just facts matter. Truth matters. There is such thing as truth. There is such thing as falsehoods and, and lies. We see anti-factualism, denialism, revisionism about the Holocaust in rising numbers, which I think is a real concern. It's a big reason I wanted to make this piece, because we need a factual record. Um, startling numbers, particularly of young people, have either never heard of the Holocaust or, or believe it didn't happen or was exaggerated. And so um, we need to reject falsehoods. It sounds simplistic, but we need to reject falsehoods and embrace truth and fact. Again, that's CNN's Ellie Honig. Follow him on Twitter at Eli, Ellie Honig, E-L-I-E-H-O-N-I-G on Twitter. Legal Grab Bag is next. You're listening to the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Face-Off. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. It's time for the Legal Grab Bag here on the Legal Face-Off podcast. Let's get to our two guests, starting with the Catholic in training, Eddie Spearman. Eddie, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello. Thank you. Along with Rachel Horbenko, friend of the podcast of Fearly Legal, rather Fearless Legal Services, licensed attorney and real estate broker in Illinois. Rachel, thanks very much for joining us as well. Thanks for having me again. Tina, let's uh, jump into one of the topics we've actually been covering for quite some time now, jury finding Ahmaud Arbery's killers 
as racially motivated in chasing after him. Yeah, so yesterday afternoon, Joe, a jury found that the three men who killed Ahmad Arbery two years ago, um, almost the day, are guilty of all the charges in their federal hate crimes trial and found that the men did chase um, Arbery through the Georgia streets because he was black. Travis and Gregory McMichael and their neighbor, William Roddy Bryan, were all found guilty of interference of rights, which is a federal hate crime, as well as attempted kidnapping. Travis McMichael, in addition, who was the one who fatally shot Arbery, was also found guilty on a charge of using and carrying a Remington shotgun, while his dad was found guilty of using and carrying the 357 Magnum revolver. Um, all three men can now receive up to life in prison, as well as pretty steep fines on top of the sentences they already received for their prior murder convictions. So as we know, we've been watching this story very closely. The prosecutors in this case were trying to prove that the three men acted out of racial animus. Um, and the prosecutors honed in on the testimony detailing how all three defendants were very public in their speaking about Black folks, including using racial slurs. And the defense attorneys argued that the McMichaels who claimed that Arbery had been trespassing multiple times, um, particularly at this one home that was under construction in the neighborhood, pursued him in an effort to stop him for police. And Travis McMichael claimed that he shot Arbery in self-defense um, after having to wrestle over the shotgun. Um, and we know that Brian joined the pursuit in his own truck um, as the McMichaels were um, really just preying on Arbery as he was trying to run away, and he recorded the video of the shooting. Clearly, there's a lot to unpack from this trial, much more than we can get into here. Um, it was a very emotional scene, as can be expected after the verdict was read. Um, Arbery's mother um, thanked the Justice Department for bringing the federal charges, but also was critical of them for reaching a plea deal um, with the McMichaels before the trial started. Um, the judge overseeing the case had rejected that deal because the family had raised concerns that um, it could impact um, the imprisonment conditions. Um, ben Crump, who's a frequent legal face-off guest, has said that he and the family plan to bring a civil suit once the criminal proceedings have concluded. So clearly a very emotional case, understandably, um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens um, litigation-wise. Yeah, a couple of interesting parts of it are, uh, you mentioned the emotions. I mean, the, the mom of uh, Mont Arbery was very vocal after the trial. She wasn't very vocal up until this point, really, but, you know, she kind of let it, let it fly. And, and one of the things she uh, focused on was the fact that there was a plea agreement with these defendants prior to the verdict a couple of weeks ago. And she said that, you know, the family basically pressured the prosecutors into calling off that deal. And actually the judge stepped in and said, on the verge of accepting it, that we're not going to accept this plea deal. So I think that's very interesting. Number two, you might ask, well, what does a life sentence mean when someone's already serving a life sentence? I think the prosecutors were out to make a point in this case. The federal government was out to make a point. And the point <laughs> is, when there's overwhelming evidence of a hate crime, like in this case, and there was overwhelming evidence, I mean, you know, if you look at the evidence, there was countless examples of these people using all sorts of terms, you know, uh, both online and in public, uh, derogatory terms of, of, of African-Americans. So at some point, as uh, the AG, Merrick Garland, said yesterday, you have to make an example of this kind of thing. And it's not enough that they were just tried for murder and convicted of murder, but it was clearly a hate crime. And the third interesting case, our point is, in light of our guest last podcast calling for the uh, Laquan McDonald convicted murder, Jason Van Dyke, former Chicago police officer. They're call many people are calling for him to be charged with a federal hate crime. The difference there, I, I think, and the reason why he hasn't been charged thus far by the U.S. attorney here in Illinois is to prove a hate crime. You have to prove, as the name implies, that someone was motivated by a racial animus, by a racial bias. In the Arbery murderers, that was clear. There was a long track record, as we saw during the trial, of all sorts of evidence. In Jason Van Dyke, we know that he shot and killed Laquan McDonald. We don't know, and it's going to be hard to prove, in my opinion, that he did so because Laquan McDonald was black. 
So that's where I think the difference lies. But I'm interested in hearing on any of these issues from Rachel. What are your thoughts on uh, on this verdict? Uh, I mean, I I agree um, just in the the, uh, the stuff that I've read, uh, the articles that I've read. I mean, it, it's obvious that these guys are racist. I mean, they were there are multiple incidences of them using racial terms, you know, slurs. Um, it, it, I mean, to me, the whole, the whole thing from the beginning just felt like a good old fashioned lynching. I mean, honestly, the whole thing was disgusting. Um, so the fact that they were able to dig up all this background on these guys is not surprising to me at all. Eddie, what are your thoughts on this? It's a deplorable act. It should never be repeated. These things, it's unfortunate that our society sees more of these type of incidents occur. And then when they do, it charges up the society because, People are tired of seeing people of African descent getting harmed by people of European descent. And then this is what occurs. We all get kind of upset about that. Well, rightfully upset. And my hearts go out to the family that lost their loved one. Rich, the Duke of York has settled the sexual assault case filed against him for an undisclosed sum. Yeah, you know, Prince Andrew uh, has consistently maintained his innocence. And uh, we've covered the story extensively of Virginia Giffray. Uh, alleged in a lawsuit that he had sexually assaulted her years ago. And there was a mountain of evidence supporting that. We all saw, many of us saw the the awful interview that Prince Andrew gave that was a public relations disaster where he denied it and said he doesn't remember. Listen, everyone knew that he was guilty. He was basically thrown out of the royal family as a result of this. And like many of these cases, he threw some money at it, which is okay in some respects in a good in a good way it gives this victim you know some financial security it obviously doesn't erase the horrific crime that was committed on her and it doesn't result in an admission of guilt by prince andrew uh you know unfortunately in our society monetary remuneration is often the only way to get someone justice it would have been nice for prince andrew to be convicted of this crime and not just hide behind his privilege uh he did settle for you know probably a lot of money it's not disclosed didn't that money go to his uh her charity though i thought i read something about it not going directly to her but to her charity instead yeah she did she did give a a large portion of it to to a charity which you know to her credit i think is a good thing but you know it's kind of a a a bittersweet end to the story tina yeah no i agree rich um i mean when you i mean i think we all knew it was going to end this way though because The whole notion of this going all the way through a trial, I I think the royal family wouldn't have tolerated it. I I think it it would have just it had nowhere good to go for Prince Andrew. I mean, as it is, no one from York wants to have anything to do with him. So he's got to drop that from his title. And just given the royal family, just everything that's been going on with them as of late, I think I read right before the show started, I think Prince Harry has filed another libel suit. So it's just become, you know, constant litigation and unfortunately dirty laundry for the royal family. Yeah, Eddie, I mean, you know, we've had a lot of victims of sexual assault on our program in the almost eight years we've been running. And, you know, inevitably, while you might end up with a result like this, if you're an accuser, your name gets, you know, dragged through the mud. And that is the very reason why people don't come forward, you know, and the idea that you're coming forward simply to gain fame is kind of crazy, right? I mean, who wants this kind of fame? So uh, any thoughts on, you know, uh, whether a sentiment like this will promote more people speaking the truth or have the opposite effect? I think I think it would promote. And the reason be it, if you're putting it out there to begin with, the outcome in this case, because of this person's great privilege, is the reason they're able to just go ahead and settle. But not everybody that commits any kind of crime like this has that privilege. So I would say that it would promote it. It, it. it should. You know, if women feel like they're getting mistreated and God forbid they're being sexually assaulted. Yeah. Speak up all the time. It, that's uncalled for. So make sure you do say something, see something, say something. Yeah, Rachel, I know you've got strong feelings on uh, on cases like this, but also, you know, women's rights in general. And for every 
for Gina Jaffray, unfortunately, there's, you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of other women who don't have the ability to come forward and, uh, you know, have been stifled, uh, you know, in the past and, you know, subject of uh, non-disclosure agreements, for example. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, I I think it, if anything, it, it helps open up a dialogue. You know, anytime one of these matters comes up in the news, you know, the Weinstein stuff and, the, you know, all of the the things that have come up lately with with sexual assault. I think it just helps open up the conversation. Um, you know, the more people talk about it, obviously, the more comfortable they feel talking about it. I, I think it's important. I mean, even even if it's just, you know, he's got to throw a bunch of money at it. I mean, it, it opens up a dialogue for people to to feel more comfortable coming forward. Tim Potter, the ex-Minnesota cop convicted in Dante Wright's death, has been sentenced to two years, Rich. Again, sort of a tough story. You know, uh, Kim Potter, of course, is famously the police officer who, uh, after the George Floyd murder, uh, used her gun instead of her taser and ended up killing Dante Wright and was... uh, you know, convicted a couple of months ago. And now, as you mentioned, sentenced to two years for manslaughter. You know, some look at two years as too much for someone who was in the course of their duties as a police officer and who made a mistake. You know, I actually watched the sentencing and the judge said that most of the reasons that you punish someone don't apply to Kim Potter, right? We don't think, for example, that there is a risk of recidivism. We don't think she's a career criminal who's going around using her gun instead of her taser. We also think that she showed a tremendous amount of remorse. That being said, she killed someone, right? And while it was a mistake, she ended this young man's life. So for some people, two years is too much for a mistake, a mistake for sure. For others, including members of the family and the Minnesota Attorney General, this amount was too little. So I think some of it depends on your perspective. Also, by the way, Tina, she's getting credit for some of her time served. So she's only going to serve about a little over half of that two year sentence. Well, obviously, very, very tough situation. And there is no good solution because nothing's going to bring Dante right back. And ultimately, his family is going to suffer the rest of their lives because he's no longer with them. I agree to, you know, to the extent that we're going to try to think about this logically, that it isn't as if she's going to run out and do this again. I'm not really sure that um, the length of her sentence is going to impact whether or not others do this. Um, I I think the only real major takeaway that there may be is for other folks who are in similar positions, just making sure that they're really clear about what they're supposed to do in certain circumstances and do what they can so that they don't get, um, I guess, caught off guard to the extent that you believe that it was unintentional. I don't think it was it was intentional, but. nothing's going to bring them back. So I don't think that there is a good solution, no matter how much time she serves. Yeah. uh, Rachel, you're from uh, Minnesota. So I'm sure the story hits home for you, as does the George Floyd story. But, you know, one of the things that's impactful to me as we've covered the story is, yes, it was a mistake. But would Kim Potter have made that same mistake had she pulled over a white motorist? Right. So Yes, you could maybe understand how she pulled, you know, the the gun instead of the taser, although that flies in the face of her training. And, she, you know, she was a veteran of the force. But would she even be in that situation? Would she have pulled over a white guy for driving with a air freshener in his car? Or okay. if she pulled over a white guy, would it have escalated to the point where she even had to be put in that situation to choose between a taser and a gun? So I don't think you could take race uh, out of this. And for that reason. I think two years is a little bit light from my perspective. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I've i never obviously been a law enforcement officer, but I mean, I, I know quite a few and have had discussions with them about this. And it's the, the overwhelming opinion seems to be that they find it very hard that you would mistake a taser for a gun. Um, I mean, that's the first thing I I understand that it was a mistake and she may have been flustered, but I have a really hard time getting over that in my mind. 
Um, and I, I do think two years is light. I mean, I, a guy is, a man is dead for a mistake that she made and whether or not she intentionally made that mistake, it's still, it's still a tough pill to swallow that two years. And especially with time served. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like it's anything at all, honestly. Eddie quickly too light or, or, uh, or the right sentence. It's too light. Anytime you end someone's life, I mean, she is a trained police officer. And I always think of this too, as if you're going to be in that kind of situation as a law enforcement officer, you're acting with so much adrenaline pumping through you. Your training needs to kick in all the time. You know, you should know by the time you put that hand on a weapon, just based on the weight or the, the form on the, on the grip, Hey, this is my taser. This is my actual dischargeable weapon. So no, it's too light. I agree. Let's transition into some sports law. U.S. women's soccer and U.S. soccer stars have settled on a landmark agreement that will ensure equal pay for both male and female players. Tina. Yeah. So, Joe, yesterday, various U.S. women's soccer stars reached a $24 million settlement with the U.S. Soccer Federation following their lawsuit over unequal pay and treatment when compared to their male counterparts. According to the terms of the settlement, U.S. soccer will pay men and women at an equal rate going forward, including in the World Cup. The dispute started, and we were covering this on Legal Face Face Off way back when, in 2016, when five women soccer stars filed an EEOC complaint. And in March 2019, 28 members of the U.S. Women's National Team filed lawsuit, citing years of ongoing institutionalized gender discrimination against the players with respect to their comp as well as working conditions. Under the terms of the settlement, U.S. soccer will pay $22 million to the players who were plaintiffs in the case and an additional $2 million into an account to benefit players in their post-career goals and charitable efforts, particularly those that relate to women's soccer. Players will be able to apply for up to $50,000 from this fund. The settlement is contingent on the ratification of a new collective bargaining agreement for U.S. WNT and U.S. soccer, which will then resolve all the claims in the suit. This is the end to what has been a very long litigious road for the past several years. Um, There have been many articles and conversation about really what the pay disparity has been. Um, For example, FIFA awarded $400 million in prize money for the 32 teams at the 2018 Men's World Cup and $38 million to France, who was the champion. And when you compare that to the $30 million in prize money for the 24 women's teams in the 2019 World Cup and the $4 million that went to the U.S. for winning their second straight title, um, it's no wonder that people think that there was a pay disparity there. So... Um, the end to a long saga, Rich. Yeah, I mean, speaking of, you know, too much or too little, I mean, this is a large amount, but it's it's too little when you consider how many plaintiffs were involved and how many years of pay disparity and other, you know, trickery and tomfoolery that was going on. It's 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 really light. And, you know, when if you know anything, I know Joe has some opinions on this, I'm sure, but if you know anything about any major large organization, but in particular groups like FIFA. Or the IOC. I mean, they're just rife with corruption and, you know, billions of dollars of money going to, you know, a very small amount of people. So, you know, I applaud the uh, the U.S. Uh, women's team for their uh, bravery and their stick to this to get this amount. But the grand scheme of things, it's it's a very small amount. But, you know, litigation is expensive and you understand why ultimately people who are in this position who are really amateurs who are not getting paid you know, who are amateurs in terms of what they're getting paid, they got to move on with their lives and they got to make some money. So, you know, you understand that, but I kind of wish that uh, there was a little more money coming to them, Rachel. I, I wonder if this opens the door for other, other sports, you know, there's, there's a huge disparity in every single sport when it comes to what men are paid and what women are paid. So I wonder, I wonder how many other lawsuits are going to pop up because of this. I'll be curious to see that. Yeah, Eddie, you're training, right? We know that you're training for the Olympics. So you, uh, you know, you probably are seeing every day the challenges that uh, exist out there in terms of uh, how expensive it is to train and how there are disparities, not just among genders, but among, you know, people of color. It's very difficult 
for someone of color. We saw in the Winter Olympics, you know, the most successful ever uh, African-American female. She did great. But, you know, so few athletes uh, of color have access to training facilities and resources to get to places like U.S. soccer or the Olympics. That's great. And just speaking on behalf of like my story, I am starting from scratch with this. So literally I had a vision. God touched me in a very profound way, said, you're going to change the world. And I've been going at this 100%. Chicago Gately Stadium, by the way, that's where I train. And that's a good place for people to go for track and field. It's a state-of-the-art Olympic facility. So there are places around for this type of you know, atmosphere if you go seek and find it. But I'm glad that Rachel hit it on those. Like, I hope this does open the door for other major sports, especially I'll just use WNBA, NBA, for example. Yeah. Make it more equal pay. You know, athlete, the disparity athlete there is, is crazy. It yeah. is. Yes, ma'am, it is. But an athlete is an athlete, you know. So I think the the major factor is what the revenue driving driver is. So more people watch NBA versus WNBA, but you know, let's let's try to fix it with better marketing because they're both outstanding organizations. They have great athletes, so they both should get paid equally, in my opinion. And I imagine it's not cheap to be an athlete of any sort. I mean, there's a lot of money that goes into training and you know getting those facilities and the equipment and whatever it is you need to to do that i mean it's not cheap i'm sure no it's definitely not <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of marketing a former white Sox ticket broker rich is looking at 18 months in prison for profiting on nearly nine hundred thousand dollars by selling fraudulent tickets story is like great uh yeah i mean ticket broker uh, as you mentioned, uh, made yeah, almost $900,000 for selling 35,000 fraudulently obtained tickets from 2016 to 2019. Not the greatest years, Joe, for the, for the White Sox. My favorite part of the story, and you know, we, it's a lot of detail, but my favorite part of the story is the defense. Well, his defense was twofold. Number one, I built my business from my bootstraps, talking about you know starting yourself, and you know provided for me and my family. Well, we get it, but it's easy to do that when you're ripping off you know these tickets. But but my favorite part of the defense was uh, yes, I was illicitly taking advantage of these tickets, but hey, the White Sox benefited because more people came out and drank beer. That Sox fans like to drink. <laughs> so it's, a I mean, it's not a lie it's a win-win <laughs> hey, it's a victimless crime right they just, were just this past year they were they were voted or ranked or whatever the top selling ballpark for beer in, in the major I, I don't doubt it hey man we're all chicagoans we all like to drink yeah but but drink. everyone says that people only go to wrigley to get drunk and, and watch the cubs but but apparently it's okay if it's on the south side sorry hey, listen some of those south side teams between 2016 and 2019 like by inning four, what yeah, else are you going to do? But just get <laughs> loaded on old style. So I, I love a creative defense on legal face-off, and that was one of my uh, one of my favorite ones. Rachel, you're a. I mean, Tina, what uh, what are your thoughts on? Uh, well, I mean, the whole notion, as you pointed out, Rich, that you know the Sox benefited from it, therefore, you know, it should be okay or mitigate whatever you know fate is going to befall him. I mean, if that was the standard by which whether what people have done is illegal or wrong is measured, then no one would ever go to jail or be prosecuted for anything. Right. Right. <laughs> it would turn, turn the whole legal system on its head. That's a win-win. Listen, Rachel, however you got people out to socks park, the better, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think the other thing was, um, wasn't it like, uh, free tickets or like discounted tickets that he was getting and reselling. And he was trying to argue that he didn't know that they were free. Like there was some argument about how he thought he was paying for them. Like yeah, was, how, I, I, I don't understand that defense at all. It was an intricate system, but it's good to know, Joe, that uh, the FBI is watching, you know, uh, that uh, they're watching this kind of stuff, but uh, not happening for the King County Cooners, thankfully. No, no, but I, I agree with the whole thought of, uh, well, yeah, I, I broke the law, but it, it did benefit some people. Officer, I was I was speeding 40 miles over the speed limit, but that being said, I was able to get to court to pay my ticket, you know, so it always <laughs> itself out. It's the Larry David having said that. <laughs> Everything is full circle here. Uh, 
Two U.S. figure skaters alongside NBC have been named in a lawsuit that alleges they used a song during the Olympic routine without the artist's permission, Tina. Yeah, so last week, Joe, the heavy young heathens filed suit in the Central District of California's Southern District against the two figure skaters, Brandon, Brandon Frazier and Alexa Kinnearum, alleging that their use of the heavy young heathens version of House of the Rising Sun during their short program in the Olympics was without their permission and therefore was copyright infringement. And as you mentioned, Joe, there were others that were named in the suit as well, including Comcast, NBC, Peacock, USA Network, and U.S. Figure Skating. So we've seen these types of claims, different fact patterns, but it's really pretty much all the same thing. Um, The genesis of their claim is that permission wasn't sought to use their track. Um, They named the other defendants because of the distribution of the performance that included the infringing use of the song. Um, The plaintiffs allege that there was writing off of their popularity, their talent and goodwill, that it was brazen and improper in their effort to capitalize on the hard work that they put into this version of House of the Rising Sun. But I hope, I mean, I heard to cut you off, but I hope the Maradosian brothers had permission to use that song from Eric Burden. It's a cover, so, you know... Turn, if, turn about is fair play, Rich, as you right. know. So it be all great we can if, do is hope for them. I was just thinking, it would be great if the animals or Eric Burden sue these guys for <laughs> using House of the Rising Sun, right? Their argument was they were the skaters were using their popularity, right? Like, I've never even heard of this band. Am I, am I the only person? Or, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> well, I thought strange. it was just me, Rachel. You know, I'm just thinking it's because, you know, I'm like over the hill or something when it comes to Eddie, what's what's popular your... in music these days. Eddie, I mean, your... I, I'm glad to know I'm not the only one. Eddie, Paris, let's, let's set the scene. Paris 2026. Uh, you walk out representing uh, United States of America. I'm there as your coach giving you a towel. And what's the walkout song? The licensed, hopefully, walkout song for Eddie Spearman, the Catholic. Aloe Black, the man. Nice. There you go. Done. Tina, start with. But I would make sure. I would definitely make sure. Make sure you have permission. (laughs) Tina's going to secure that for you as we speak. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Just call me first before you use it. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Well, I know all of us have already been prepped on the final story, but let's play a game with the listeners and people tuned in (laughs) on Facebook Live right now. I'll slowly say this headline, and whenever you think you might know what state the person is from, just go ahead and yell <laughs> out in, in your room or whatever. Uh, a drunk lawyer busted for stripping naked in a bar after being refused service. Rich, you get, you get one guess. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Is it Utah? Is it North Dakota? No, it's Florida, our favorite state for drunk naked lawyers. Yeah, uh, this woman's name was Kelly Elkins, 49 years old. I mean, there's so many great parts of the story, but like the drunken naked part wasn't even the beginning of her night, right? She She went to a Thai restaurant. And got all loaded up there and couldn't pay her bill. Didn't pay the bill. Left the Thai restaurant, got to the beach lounge, which is just a place I can't wait to go to the beach lounge. It's in St. Petersburg. And, uh, you know, went in the bathroom after the manager refused to, to serve her and they came out naked. <laughs> and uh, even after she was told to put her clothes on, she wouldn't leave. At some point, she was naked in the bar and she put on a zip up hoodie. But didn't zip it up. But didn't zip it up. I'm sure that was attractive. Yeah, it kind of like, you know, detracts from the whole. Why do you have the zip up hoodie? You're not going to use the zipper. Uh, <laughs> So she was charged with uh, misdemeanor disorderly conduct, released in her own recognizance. What? How do you release a person to the general? She's going right back to the bar, naked and drunk. I mean, that's my every weekend right here with this lady does, oh right? God. And she's still a <coughs> practicing Yikes. lawyer. She's a member of the Florida Bar. Rachel, she's a fellow. Uh, she's in real estate. She's currently a licensed real estate agent. So um, I say, Joe, road trip. To the bar in St. Pete. Let's go. It's got to be a party down there. I, I would love broadcast. to have been. Yeah, I would love to have been in that restaurant 
or that bar when those things were going on. I would like to be your opposing counsel on a case. And, you know, you're on a Zoom, you know, a serious Zoom conference with a judge and you're the other attorney. And this attorney is making some serious argument. (laughs) Yeah, you look her up. You're like, wait a second. Your boobs are hanging out of the hoodie. (laughs) Your Honor, may I share my screen? (laughs) So Rich, you would tell her like that? You would say it just like that? Uh, I'd get sued if I said that, but, uh, you know. Well, being a lawyer is very stressful. You know, she's just blown off some steam. I mean, the good news is she didn't, like, overspend at the Thai restaurant. You know, usually if you're going to go in and, like, not pay, you come out with a $500 bill. She only spent a tidy conservative 38 bucks. I mean, that's. I mean, maybe it was all my ties. Yeah, come on. <laughs> oh, my God. Great my ties. I, I don't know. I, I prefer my lawyers to just bear all. I mean, that's. that's yeah. I all right. Really quickly, because I got to go coach. If you had to have a meal and then get drunk in a bar, what would that meal? What would that last meal before your arrest for drunken disorderly conduct be? Would it be Thai? Would it be something else, Joe? What's your pre naked arrest meal of choice well for a string of events like that i would like something that wouldn't completely upset my stomach i would probably <laughs> not like mexican that's a great answer yeah and, yeah probably ramen or something right. i know it was just the last thing you want to do is run to the you know jail toilet right exactly <laughs> uh, joe getting crazy at the ramen restaurant <laughs> No, no, no. It's, it's you fill up on food and then you go into your wild night of events. So yeah. lots of cars. And you're on a tight fitness regimen, obviously. What what's your would you would you have a cheat meal maybe for this? Uh, you know uh, what? I really I really probably wouldn't have a cheat meal. And uh, this is going to sound corny, but sweet potatoes, avocado, black beans. That's kind of mm-hmm. my thing. So, you know, that's what I like to eat a lot. So true story. <laughs> Hey, you can absorb all the alcohol with that. Yeah, Rachel. That, you have a good point. That's a lot of fiber. Rachel, this is not totally a hypothetical, you know, maybe for you, but tell us what would your last meal would be before you go? Out uh, I mean, I got to go with Joe. I'm not going Mexican or like <laughs> or anything crazy like that. Um, gosh. Maybe a light, a light. Not dinner. Indian food. I mean, I can tell you a lot of things I wouldn't want to eat. I don't know. Right. I mean, Thai is not up on my list, though, I'll tell you that. Maybe like a nice steak. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, fancy. I do Italian. You Italian? Know, I, don't, I, I don't eat a Load lot of pasta usually at all. Yeah. But I would Load say I want to have a good wholesome meal to try to absorb some of that alcohol to try to mitigate against me being getting naked really in a bar. Foolish. <laughs> See, I would go like really, really low carb because the whole lot of you're going to be naked in a couple of minutes. And you, know, <laughs> you don't want to be bloated. Yeah, you want to look good in that in that zip up hoodie that's, you know, not zippered up. So, yeah, I go I go super wow. light. Only hitting, only going through the hardest hitting topics here on the Legal Grab Bag. That's going to do it for this edition of the Legal Faceoff Podcast. Big thanks to our guests, Rachel and Eddie, today, along with all of our earlier guests as well. Yes, go Harriet Tubman Bulldogs, apparently, with uh, Coach Lenkoff. Thanks to our producers, Yvonne Barbosa, Emily Flores, and Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Faceoff Podcast wherever you find your podcast, and please Give us five stars as well. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. Please be advised you'll see our next Legal Faceoff podcast in about two weeks. Thanks for and tuning follow in. Eddie's follow Eddie's uh, road to Paris, right? Eddie, where can people follow you? Yeah, Instagram me at one earth Eddie. Go Eddie, right. man. We'll 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 be rooting for you. I'm on it. Thank you so much, guys, for the support. Thank you for the opportunity. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question, just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.